0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities
1: Podcast. Keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. My name is Kurt Wolf, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Chris
2: Ekamoff. Good to be with you, buddy. You too, Kurt. And, and I kind of like the way you do the intro better, so maybe we'll flip it up uh, in episodes <laughs> coming up.
1: I don't know. I, I, I'm consciously thinking about how you say it as I'm <laughs> as I'm doing it, so we'll see. I feel like we're always uh, dropping acronyms here on the Insecurities Podcast. And today, I've got a new one for you. Uh Iolta.
2: I-O-L-T-A. Iolta. Do you know this one, Chris? I I, I don't. It kind of sounds like something that my... Polish grandmother used to say when she was seasoning the (laughs) holiday meal, Iolta. Um, But I'll take a guess. Uh, the, The International Organization of Lawyers Trolling Accountants.
1: Am, am oh, I close? I, is that is that what you're talking about? N- no, but I'm going to start it. I'm I was going to say you're a, like you're the founding, founding member of the trolling yeah, accounts exactly. association. Oh, after poor after poor West Bricker <laughs> met right. with some of my trolling. <laughs> uh, no, and, and uh, it's not even really close, buddy. Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> IOTA stands for interest on lawyer trust accounts. The long story short, lawyers or law firms are often asked or required to hold clients' funds in trust. The accounts in which they hold the funds may earn interest rates. An IOLTA is a mechanism for states to raise money for the provision of civil legal services to indigent persons or for other charitable purposes by repurposing the interest on lawyer trust accounts to fund those services. Chris, I know providing pro bono legal services and finding the funds to do so, is something near and dear to your heart as a board member at the NVRDC. Why don't you tell us about that?
2: Kurt, you, you know I could fill an entire episode just talking about the Network for <laughs> Victim Recovery in DC, or known by its shortened acronym, NVRDC. Uh, the organization acronym. empowers victims of all crimes to achieve survivor-defined justice through a collaborative continuum of advocacy, case management, and legal services. In short, NVRDC provides a network of support from when a survivor first arrives at a hospital for for a sexual assault exam or first seeks support for legal advice. And for those of you who don't know, sometimes an an individual may show up to a hospital and really not know how the system is going to work, you know, interacting with a doctor related to a sexual assault exam, and they may never see that doctor again, filing a police report with an officer that they may never get the contact information to reach out to that specific officer. So NVRDC seeks to fill those gaps and provide support, counseling, and pro bono legal services for that individual all the way through the process. And I'm interested to hear more about IOLTA, Kurt, but I know NVRDC does a great job of partnering with local law firms in Washington, D.C., to get their associates and, and junior partners into the courtroom to help support these, these underserved people uh, in their time of need. And it's really an, an interesting uh, funding mechanic for NVRDC. Not only are they supported by federal grants and, and local grants in, in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, but also through the generous contributions of, of folks and organizations across across the greater Washington area.
1: Thanks for the info about NVRDC. I know we've talked about it a bunch over mm-hmm. the years. It's certainly important work, and I know the the mission means an awful lot to you. In addition to nonprofits like NVRDC, there are a lot of charitable organizations that are dedicated to providing pro bono legal services, and they, you know, as you suggested, they rely on different sources of funding. They could be state funding, they could be donations, uh, et cetera. Today on Insecurities, what we want to do is share an episode from our sister podcast, PLI's Pursuing Justice, the pro bono files, that focuses on some of those funding mechanisms. And and in particular, it looks at the role of IOLTA and how states fund their local pro bono services.
2: For longtime listeners of the Insecurities Podcast, you may remember back on episode 12, uh, almost a year ago uh, to the day, we highlighted a separate episode of the Pro Bono Files. This latest episode really resonated with us, so we thought we would share it with you again. On this episode titled, Turning Crisis into Opportunity, host Alicia Aiken confronts a simple truth. Running a Pro Bono program costs money. On this episode, (laughs) Alicia and some very talented attorneys from Indiana Tell the story of when Indiana's statewide legal services program faced a serious financial challenge in response to the 2008 financial crisis, and explain how Indiana's pro bono stakeholders pulled together and, with a law firm's help, turned a financial crisis into an opportunity. And it really reflects what we see here in Washington, D.C. with NVRDC. The pro bono efforts work best when there's a network of collaboration across legal aid, pro bono attorneys, Officers of the court and other stakeholders in the legal process and the greater community at large.
1: Absolutely. It will actually answer your questions about how IOLTA works, Chris. But it gets at the bigger point about how uh, when everybody kind of pitches together, when people are willing to contribute their time and money to a good cause, you can achieve an awful lot. Which is why we thought our listeners would enjoy this episode of The Pro Bono Files. And if you do, we hope that you will like and subscribe to the podcast online. As far as insecurities is concerned, we will be back in two weeks with our regular programming. Until then, we hope you will enjoy this encore presentation of Turning Crisis into Opportunity from the PLI podcast, Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files.
3: when the interest rates and everything that were dependent on IOLTA income went from $3 million a year down to $300,000 a year. And that's the reality of what the, the interest rate environment did to us. It dramatically impacted the whole program and the whole network.
4: Here's the thing. Running a pro bono program costs money. To have a system where the volunteer lawyer with the right time and skills gets connected to people who need the help, it costs money. Someone has to be managing the system, building the network, connecting the dots, bringing the lawyers and the clients together, making sure the lawyers know enough to do the work well. And because the community of lawyers is different in every area, somebody local has to be involved. Because the pro bono system that makes sense in Indianapolis won't make any sense in rural parts of the same state. So. The Indiana Bar Foundation was pretty excited when they found a way to reliably fund every local pro bono system using a program called IOLTA. Problem solved! Until that reliable funding disappeared almost overnight. Today, we'll tell the story of how Indiana thought they had solved the money problem, how the Great Recession wiped out their solution, and how a team of Indiana's leaders with support from Fagre Drinker Biddle, turn the crisis into an opportunity to build back better. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences, I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast.
3: I'm Chuck Dunlap, I'm president and CEO of the Indiana Bar Foundation and time does fly. I've I will be here 20 years in September. Um and as part of the Bar Foundation, we're the single largest statewide private funder for civil legal aid.
4: Chuck, could you explain for the folks who are listening what IOLTA is?
3: So interest on lawyers trust accounts uh, is the acronym, what it stands for. Each state or each jurisdiction has an IOLTA program. And the the way it's designed to work is that attorneys hold money on behalf of clients. So it could be a settlement, it could be some sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of escrow or, or fees that have been paid, or um, that they're holding clients money. In the past, it would just be held. There would be no interest earned on it. But when regulations changed and um, you could hold interest on those accounts or create interest at the banks, that interest would then go to support something. A lot of states in Indiana, it goes to support our our pro bono districts and the pro bono network.
4: This is one of those simple solutions that made a huge difference. Florida started the first IOLTA program in 1981, back when interest rates were around 10 percent. Today, every state funds access to justice, at least in part through an IOLTA program. Indiana launched an IOLTA program later than most, and they decided to funnel that money into supporting pro bono.
3: Our IOLTA program essentially was funding the entire pro bono system in Indiana. And that's great when you're bringing in $3 million a year and it's a brand new revenue source and you have all of these things going for you. So we came onto this in like the late 90s, very late we finally got this great revenue source and we built up a $3 million reserve and the networks are about 14 um, regions of Indiana, originally those were designed to be and mirror the judicial districts in Indiana. And each of those districts had a um, coordinator who may or may not be an attorney, but they would be the infrastructure then to support pro bono in that particular part of the state. And so they would recruit volunteer lawyers. They would screen cases for income eligibility. They would place and and um, sort of you know do those sorts of things. And that's what the funding supported, that infrastructure. The attorneys were volunteer attorneys. They're doing pro bono work, they're working for free, but it was the system itself to help maximize that and organize that structure and provide some structure for it. And so when, when the interest rates and everything that were dependent on IOLTA income went from $3 million a year down to $300,000 a year, and that's the reality of what the the interest rate environment did to us, um, it, it dramatically impacted the whole program and the whole network.
5: My name is Melissa May. I am a judge on the Indiana Court of Appeals, and this month will actually be my 24th anniversary on the bench. I initially started out being involved in pro bono as a member of the Indiana Pro Bono Commission, and then I was chair for, what, three years, I believe, when everything kind of fell apart. As a member of the Pro Bono Commission at that point, it was fantastic to have all this money that we could give out to the 14 Indiana pro bono districts. And what do you want? Oh, here it is. Here it is. Well, yeah, we can put some money back in reserves. We can, you know, we've got like, you know, million back in reserves. We've got 1.5 million. We're set.
4: By 2008, IOLTA programs were raising $263 million nationwide. It was an effective mechanism for funding access to justice programs. But, The Great Recession also arrived in 2008, and interest rates crashed. That key ingredient for raising IOLTA funds disappeared almost overnight.
5: So then the interest rates went down.
3: The interest rates and everything that were dependent on IOLTA income went from $3 million a year down to $300,000 a year.
5: And these huge reserves that we thought we had turned into not much. Um, in comparison to what the need was. And, and I remember one day getting ready for um, the big meeting where we would sit down at the pro bono commission, and figure out what district got what money. And I remember sitting there with all of the applications and all the spreadsheets and everything and, and just running the numbers and figuring out that, that we did not have enough money to fund the, fund the districts to keep the lights on much less do anything else with them with the amount of money that we had. It was a very frustrating time.
3: And what we ended up doing was reducing the amount of the grants to stretch it as long as we could. We got creative, but it was in that timeline um, that, you know, when things were, were crashing from a revenue perspective, the pro bono district's where the network was there, it needed support, it needed money to support it. Basically, we're relying on one revenue source that was interest rate dependent. And when interest rates are zero, obviously, that's not a good combination.
4: So this is a perfect example of the thing I dislike the most in my own life, a solved problem going unsolved. In less than a decade, Indiana went from launching a new source of money to fund pro bono infrastructure to having almost no funds for the 14 offices that relied on IOLTA. If it was bad for the people handing out the funding, imagine how bad it was for the offices that weren't going to get the funding. My name is Scott Wiley. I started my pro bono
6: career 32 years ago, and I have either led nonprofit civil legal aid pro bono programs or taught in poverty law environments doing clinical work. I started working in the Evansville office in 2007. And I used to have a long go- uh, you know, an ongoing joke with Chuck when 2008 hit that we had both been working with ILTA for many years. It was not unusual to have a recession and interest rates go down temporarily for, oh, you know, a year, 18 months. And we would always just say, well, when the interest rates come back in 2009, things will get better. And then it was 2010, and then it was 2011, and then it was 2017, and then it was, you know, um, the rally was just a long slog. And for each of those offices that were funded by that funding source, um, that was their, in many cases, 100% of their operating budget for the year. We got to the point, as Chuck mentioned, that you were literally triaging the system in that we were attempting to make funding decisions that kept some level of institutional knowledge and institutional capability, which meant we made some decisions that were, were rather, rather harsh in the sense that if we had a program that was without a staff member, um, that program suffered um, because we were trying to maintain the few staff members we had left
3: just one other point about that. The other unique byproduct of this was that when that happened and we sort of froze grants at a certain point to try to stretch out the timeline, the districts were in very different positions. You know, some of them were were doing relatively well. Some of them had taken staff reductions. And so wherever that funding was, that's where they were. Now, we didn't know it at the time. That's where they were stuck for almost a decade. And so, you know, their baselines were all very different based on where they entered that sort of critical time.
4: So you hit a crisis point um, and interest rates are you know, <laughs> locked at zero for a very long time. So what did you do? What did uh, all the leaders in Indiana decide to do to try to address the crisis?
5: I, I remember you know, sitting down with Chuck and other people and we're just kind of tearing our hair, hair out going, you know, what do we do? and one of the things that we ended up doing was uh, you know talking to a lot of the a lot of the districts and their and and their representatives and saying okay where can we get funding from your particular districts and and that's really when a lot of cooperation started between um the districts themselves and then other pro bono entities or, or legal aid entities to, to try to figure out how we can all work together rather than pushing against each other for the money. There's only a certain pool of money. So how can we use it best and, and use it better to accommodate the needs of the people in that area?
3: And, and this was one of the challenges, too, because the way it was set up, each delivery system or each delivery method had a kind of its own funding source
4: let's focus in on chuck's point about the delivery system and fundraising in 2008 the legal help system in indiana was divided into three parallel parts and they each had their own funding stream first statewide indiana legal services second Pro bono lawyers recruited and organized by the regional pro bono offices. And third, small legal clinics and nonprofit law firms supported by specific groups like a university or a religious community. These folks respected each other, but they didn't necessarily work together. They operated on parallel tracks. But when the IOLTA part of the funding strategy went off the rails, it was a wake-up call that maybe the whole system could be better And maybe it was time to rethink.
5: So when, you know, when there was a lot of money coming in, you know, and everybody had a lot of money, it wasn't a big problem. But when there was very little money coming in and the IOLTA money, at least it wasn't much, but it was still coming in. uh, That's when there there became, uh, you know, the problem with how do we keep this, this system that we had that evolved for these districts with this money coming in? How do we keep that system and and work with everybody else rather than fighting over the amount of money that was there? We kind of learned that it's a lot easier working together and sharing the money than it is fighting over the money that's there.
4: Of course, working together is easier said than done. How do you get 14 different regions with three parallel delivery systems to agree on one vision, to build a new infrastructure, when some of them have been triaging for survival for years. And others are worried they'll be in the same boat if they don't hold on tight to current funding streams. The first step is to get people together, get them talking, and get them thinking about what might be possible. And that is where the pro bono professionals at Fagri Drinker Biddle stepped in with a strategic assist.
7: I'm Kelly Sajas. I'm pro bono counsel and director at Fagre Drinker. I'm based in Minneapolis, but I oversee our national program, including working very closely with our office in Indiana. And probably most relevant for purposes of this discussion, before joining uh, the firm, I was at the Chicago Bar Foundation for about nine years doing policy and systems work around pro bono and access to the court.
4: I would really like to invite you to talk about Fagri's role in every conversation I've had about this. um, Everyone has highlighted the important role that Fagri played in supporting that visionary thinking.
7: Sure. And I can talk about it from my perspective, too, because it was a really neat time when I was coming in to the firm where, you know, service to others and pro bono is a core value of the firm and in many of our communities. But in Indiana in particular, um, our leadership and attorneys and staff are deeply embedded in the access to justice structure. And for a long time, we had the sole law firm pro bono professional in the state and my colleague, Monica Finnell, she's now at Taft. But so she was often at the center of helping to kind of develop pro bono projects and think through these various structures. And so in, in all of these conversations, all of these things were happening at the same time, we thought, you know what, there's a real opportunity here to support, to provide financial support, to provide technical support to create space and tools so that these conversations and this work that was happening could have a more concentrated place to take place. And it's funny, I was thinking about it when we were getting on here and I can't remember exactly how we decided on this idea of a two-day retreat in in Greencastle. Um, but we landed there and um, I, this is work that I believe deeply in. And as I had transitioned from a systems role into the law firm role. It was a really neat way for me to kind of marry those interests in furtherance of the firm's um, goals and role in the Indiana community to really support the work that was already happening.
3: And the one thing, the turning point for me, I really do market as that retreat that we had that Fagri supported, and we really brought a lot of stakeholders together that was about the same time IOLTA was coming back. And so we could we could stop sort of living in this desperate time of trying to survive and think a little bit more forward about, okay, we're going to have some more resources here. What do we want this to look like? How do we want to collaborate? How do we want to work together? And what recommendations? Where do we want to be in four or five years?
7: So it was this really neat symbiotic way that everything came together at just the right time because of all of the ongoing leadership and the funding loosening up a little bit and the community being ready and just needing some space. That's kind of how I've always thought about it.
3: One thing I just wanted to say is, and this might be hard to believe, but it was probably in my now almost 20 years, I think it was the first time that the whole state community really came together. I mean, you know, we were siloed. We weren't talking to each other. We weren't creating a statewide plan. None of that was really happening. We were all kind of existing in our own little parts of it. And we had our own little funding mechanism that may or may not be robust or healthy and certainly was never enough if you wanted to look at the demand. So really, this was a a turning point for our evolution as a state. We didn't have a system. We had a bunch of little pieces to a system that weren't collaborating and talking and, and working together. And really, this was the first opportunity that we had to sort of move that forward and, and and to create oh you know maybe it's a good idea if we do talk to each other maybe we can accomplish more that way and and come together to talk about different perspectives on what we want to see this system look like
4: who was there who did you bring together for this retreat
5: we brought everybody basically um, we brought Indiana legal aid uh, Indianapolis legal aid um, neighborhood Christian legal uh, all all of the big um, all the big providers From the pro bono districts, but anybody who had anything to do with any of the clinics, um, the law schools, everybody was there kind of in one area. And we sat down with everybody and it was said, look, we got to get along. We got to do this. We got to come up with something that works. Otherwise, we're not going to do what we're supposed to do.
3: And we invited all the pro bono districts. And again, at that time, each one was almost kind of insular and discreet. It wasn't like we are the pro bono network. We tried to get the law firms there and and not just Vagary, obviously, who was spearheading this whole effort, Mm -hmm. but to get their peers and their colleagues there from the pro bono perspective.
7: We also had corporations like Eli Lilly and others who play a big role in the pro bono system. And then also, really importantly, um, representatives of the court, including the Supreme Court um, and Judge May. And so really, it was all of the stakeholders in the pro bono and legal aid system who touched pro bono coming together in many ways for the first time. Some people with lots of skepticism, other people with lots of enthusiasm, but it was a way to, um, again, just get everyone in the same place. And I think sometimes when law firms think about small things they can do, I mean, the funding that we put in was very small, but it was enough to pay for the legal aid organizations to spend the night and to have a nice dinner and, and cocktail reception, which we thought was really important. To, to, again, like creating that collegiality and building that space to have conversations that were going to be sensitive in some ways and and hard in some ways and great and easy in others. But, you know, it was it was an interesting dynamic. And so that small amount of funding was a way to get everyone there.
5: And I think that was really getting everybody under one roof. What was really the only way to to sit down and talk about what we would like to see happen or getting people to sit down and talk where they can look at each other face-to-face and, and express honestly their, their thoughts and their fears it was really the only way to, to get it done. And um, through everybody's work, it, it seemed to do. And, and one thing I think without an active Chief Justice, a, any kind of pro bono program that um, a Supreme Court has to oversee is not going to do as well as it is unless you have an active court and an active chief justice. And we're really lucky with uh, Chief Justice Loretta Rush and the rest of the court.
7: Yeah, and it was a really strong um, like statement of support, like the presence and the the partnership and, and putting it on. And also like a morale booster. And there were some really small districts that were Kind of isolated and maybe didn't have the support and a referral system that sometimes sent like rather than then this is something we spent a lot of time on at the treat at the retreat rather than triaging cases like which ones are good for pro bono and which ones are good for a, a, an experienced legal aid attorney the system wasn't set up to triage that and so they were kind of in many places continually getting cases that like were not a good fit for pro bono or would be almost impossible to place and so there was a lot of, I mean, just feeling kind of beleaguered. And so the idea of coming together with colleagues in similar situations with the court and other leaders saying your work is really important and we want to figure out a better way to do it. I always thought that that was a really um, valuable and important part of that gathering too. We tried to bring examples from, you know, different communities and and best practices that we know about. Um, My colleague, Julia Wilson, who's just wonderful, came from California, who's gotten here for years, came from California to help um, me and all of us plan and facilitate the conversations. And so this idea of opening it up to all the possibilities, I think was another part of it. It was saying, look, this is what's possible. What do you want? Like, what? where do you want to go with this?
5: When everybody started working together, it, it really started with the expansion of the idea of pro bono. And you got to think, outside, I hate the saying, but outside the box in order to get more people involved.
4: So when you say retreat to a lot of people, they worry that it's going to be a weekend of being told to think outside the box and do trust falls, (laughs) drink at night. What happened at this retreat that made it successful?
3: A couple things that come to mind. I mean, it's been, I don't know how many years now, but we talked about things that I think people saw from different perspectives and that the discussion of pro bono is like, well, well, that's not what my thought is, but that's interesting. That's your perspective. I will say too, there were people there who were sort of of the mindset I need to be there to defend my turf, or I need to be there because I'm skeptical <laughs> of this, or I need to be there for some other reason. I'm sure I want to be, you know, doing good ultimately, but you know, I'm, I need to be there to kind of for other reasons too. And I think that that was that was there, but it dissipated over the, the timeline. And I say, I mean, Kelly and and the the facilitators did an amazing job because you know, we were all coming from very different perspectives. And this is the first time really that a lot of people are talking to each other, but we came out of there much more thinking for the first time, this can be a system that works and we need to be able to work together to get a lot of these things done and not be so, um, you know, isolated, distrustful, all of those things that we had been.
4: Kelly, what did you do? Because, because I want to say that, You know, lawyers as a bunch, all kinds of lawyers are notorious for being the most resistant to change of any sort, right? Um, (laughs) right? So what what are the strategies that you use that other people might be able to learn from to help legal aid lawyers and court systems really accept the idea that change was a good idea and they could come together and be successful?
7: What a fun question. Um, I mean, I think some of the things that are, you know, replicable are the the idea of like the importance of a physical removal. I mean, we went to this retreat center. We all stayed there. We were there for two days together with built-in social time. And and that's important.
4: I do have a question. Is Greencastle, is it like a magical retreat, Brigadoon-like spot?
6: Well, Greencastle is where DePaul University is. Okay. Paul with the W, not the L. Um, small, idyllic um, liberal arts college, about 45 minutes outside of Indianapolis. It's a beautiful, idyllic situation. They have a, an ethics center just off campus about you know a few miles in this wonderful wooded secluded area that if you use GPS you get left in a cornfield but it's a really beautiful idyllic place and that did contribute greatly the isolation of the space the beauty of the space the idea of design um, all those things were thoughtfully put together and you know Kelly and Monica Finnell her colleague and Chuck and all the folks who did it it was every piece of it was thought through we did a a lot of listening and planning before the retreat. We tried to
7: really plan the sessions to be a blend of like, you know, blue sky, big picture, the world is your oyster, kind of like dream big, but then also really kind of practical level setting of what are our common terms? Do we all agree that having a system in which a client doesn't get ping pong balls back and forth is optimal versus you know so it's like we and we so we spent that time like both before and at the retreat creating a common language kind of dreaming big and then also bringing best practices and I think one of the lessons that I really learned both throughout all of it was really listening like really listening to like what is the community and culture in Indiana how do we build on all of the amazing things that are happening and the great leadership and all of these really strong pieces like how do we build on that rather than someone said it earlier, like come in and impose some different idea of what's best or what's going to work best. And then I think um, we also had to be really nimble throughout the retreat, you know, that, that we were learning a lot. And I remember like presenting a session on like program design, like pro bono program design that we had done in other states. And we couldn't quite get to that conversation because that to me was this moment where a lot of the issues of the silos and some of the lack of support maybe for the districts because of the constrained funding, because of some of the isolation. Like all of that got surfaced in a way that led to this different conversation that wasn't what we planned, but we could take that and, and hear that and then filter it into the other things. So I think we had to be pretty adaptable too. And I think partially because of that, people felt heard and felt like they were a part of the process. And and I think that when Scott and others then went to do the really hard work of of actual implementation. That, that all of that seeded that because the because the retreat was really designed to be about what what the people on the ground were experiencing and how we could make it better.
4: What was the big idea that came out of the retreat? What's been the impact of that collaboration in the beautiful idyllic place?
3: what if we have one statewide entity with all of this ad- administrative stuff instead of paying for it 12 times and and not very well because we're stretched on dollars let's do this once and we can have local offices and we can have collaboration with the providers and not just sort of silo pro bono out here by itself somewhere
7: everyone in indiana should talk about the changes since but like in a really brass pathway for purposes of telling the story after our lovely two-day retreat In Greencastle where we spent this time we had a follow-on group that took everything we learned at the retreat and spent a lot of time putting together concrete practical recommendations. We then put together a proposal like the main components were creating Pro Bono Indiana which which Scott was talking about, Um, really reassessing the funding system which which Judge May and and Chuck have, have really been leaders on. And then continuing to work on kind of the best practices, common language systems issues, with that last one being the follow on to these first more fundamental pieces.
6: Scott, what are your thoughts? When that plan evolved and we got to the point where we were going to try to implement it, um, when I go back and think of it, and I was tasked with being the person that did that. Uh, <laughs> The thing that I found in retrospect that was the that I didn't really truly appreciate and understand, um, I went out and had to assess the health of the system. So I went into the hospital room and I had eleven colleagues at differing levels of illness, having been resource starved for a long time, and I had to convince them that. Going to the same doctor and becoming part of the same hospital was an important thing for us to do. <laughs> At the same time I was doing that, I was having to, to convince the best resourced, healthiest program that it was also important that the new money be invested in the sick people, not those of us that were well. So it was actually against their own best interest to join this effort. But they had to see the broader and the bigger picture to do that. Um, And those competing interests that came from the idea that if we were going to be a true system and do this, that wonderful work that we did at that retreat and the blue sky, as Kelly talks about, you know, that getting better, um, being more efficient, best practices, the ability to get there depended upon us bringing the weakest programs to the level of the strongest programs which meant investing in them. And that idea that if we could save resources by getting one insurance policy and having one accountant and having one checkbook and having one bank and one fee instead of 12 or 13 or 14 of them, and that we could reinvest those resources. And then the new resources we could get, we could invest for the very first time our employees have healthcare insurance none of us had ever had healthcare insurance. So the m- new money we were able to invest in our employees in a way that could allow people to make a career of civil legal aid and pro bono work so that we could attract and retain staffing levels that could bring those weaker programs to where they needed to be. But in the end, had we not done it when we did and the fortuitousness of this timing If we'd been going through the last 15 months of COVID and the pandemic in our old system, we wouldn't exist. We just wouldn't. The fact that we were able to do that work and have that partnership and do that work with our civil legal aid colleagues across the state and get all these things fixed, worked out and planned and on the way has done more to save civil legal aid services for low income people in Indiana than probably anything any of us will ever do in our careers.
5: I think one of the big reasons that that things have have worked was trust. And and I think that's one thing that that we really worked hard to to try to do and to try to maintain is, is that trust.
3: There were a lot of nervous sort of people and we had a lot of conversations and Scott won't say it but I will Scott Wiley was key. The person and the people that you have in those positions is because Scott has their trust. He knows the other he's a peer and a colleague to all the other pro bono districts. But because of that level of trust and Judge May was so right about that, it everything started with that.
4: So what I'm hearing is if you want to reform the statewide access to pro bono, hire Scott.
1: <laughs> no, don't hire Scott. We want to keep him. put a number on that?
4: <laughs> in all seriousness, though, right? It is um, great communicators. It is people who behave in a trustworthy manner.
7: Well, and um, really being willing to do the hard work, which is what Scott good right so like the retreat we can talk about is this like you know shiny moment in Greencastle. and it, it wasn't you know it was wonderful and it was important and i it laid groundwork but ultimately the reason that those recommendations have been implemented is because of the willingness to do by scott and others to do hard things to like see it through and that's the part i think sometimes with systems change that gets overlooked um and so it's been really extraordinary to watch and to see the investment that Scott and others have made in,
4: in this change. So, Scott, what are some of the concrete things you think um, have been improved in terms of the experience of clients or the delivery of services to people?
6: You know, I think the most concrete thing that I can point to is once every two weeks and sometimes weekly, Um, the entire pro bono delivery system we get on Zoom and meet, and the cross-district support and pollination of best practices, the ability to share continuing legal education trainings. We can distribute resources and things that one of us might have done individually in the past and use it through the entirety of the system. And if there's a single concrete thing um, programmatically that came out of that, um, would be that. From an administrative point, the singular kind of biggest thing, our insurance costs went down 80%. Because a base insurance policy costs about the same And when you're buying 12 of them instead of one, you waste a lot of money. And all of that money was retained by those local offices to put back, and that just added more resources to do work in the field, in those local offices across the entirety of the state.
3: I think when we were going through this process, we really wanted to retain the benefits of the grassroots local connections. But also then the best of both worlds get the get the cost benefits from the scalability of a statewide organization. And again, we've been able to do that in a lot of areas. Now, again, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, mission accomplished, un, unfurl the banner and we're done. I mean, we have so much more to do <laughs> and we're continuing to work on it. We have our challenges and covid, you know, decimated some things that we're not working on and et cetera. But, you know, the pro bono statewide network is truly a network now. It's one organization, essentially. And so that's great. When COVID uh, stimulus checks went out to people, uh, low-income people, you know, whoever was getting the checks, one of the issues was, can they be garnished? You know, can they, all those kinds of things. The community came together, petitioned the court to say, hey, can you, you know, have an order that that deals with this. And so that can protect those funds. Um, And there's more proactivity going on within the community because it sees itself as a community. And that wasn't really happening before. Um, And so that's, that's another side effect. I think that's really positive from this.
4: This is amazing. That's exciting. Um, But the other thing I heard that, that gets back to what you mentioned, Scott, which is that Talk about timing. I mean, if there was ever a time that you needed a whole state's worth of smart people making sense of new federal law and policy and state law, um, you know, I've been doing pro bono unemployment work during the pandemic. And it has taken every single person who knows anything about unemployment in the whole state of Illinois to figure out what the rules actually are. And so if you had been under your old system, you would have had 12 or 14 different Offices trying to figure out the same question 12 or 14 different times,
6: right? That that is not, that is a perfect example. Um, We've started, you know, we start every one of our meetings. It may be, I'll give you the example. Our one last week was about the extension of the eviction moratorium. And what the new form looked like and how it was being allocated and how long it would go and the best input we had gotten on what it still covered and what it did not and you mentioned unemployment that's perplexed everyone in all 50 states and all of our protectorates Um, but the reality is it gives us that chance to deliver that information oftentimes provided by one of our civil legal aid colleagues Um, It often someone from Indiana Legal Services or from another one of our colleague programs where we can now invite them to provide us that information because as a staff legal aid attorney, they have greater knowledge of that than perhaps those of us who coordinate legal
4: services and don't practice ourselves. Have you been able to take advantage of this network to get lawyers in different counties to take cases because they can appear on Zoom? Scott's shaking his head Yes.
6: You know, I wouldn't say yet that it's been really helpful in terms of the placement of cases because that's still so incredibly local. you know, it's just the reality is uh, uh, is an attorney from Fagre um, in Indianapolis really can't take a divorce in Vandenberg County, um, you know, 200 miles away. But what <laughs> it has done, what it has done that is so exciting to me, her, and I'll, I'll be able to count ca- Kelly's firm. I've got three attorneys in Indianapolis that are at Fagri. They're really lovely guys. They all graduated from law school after going to high school in a little town in southern Indiana. Town's got 11,000 people in it. It's 100 miles from Indianapolis. I'm going to sit in their library with one of our other volunteers in about three weeks with a couple of computers, with a couple of Zoom rooms, as simple as that. And those three attorneys who grew up in that little town are going to be able to sit there and talk with low-income folks from their hometown and help them. If that didn't warm your heart, they're spending some time giving back to the little hometown that raised them and allowed them to be a successful attorney. What a wonderful statement of how you can use your services when you're in an urban area and serve someone in a rural area.
7: Working on this project with my colleagues in Indiana has really been one of the great joys of my career, and then when you see things happen like people having health insurance, like systems coming together and like all of the possibilities that it opens up. And this conversation today reminded me of the importance of law firms and other corporate partners to take really seriously their leadership responsibility to be partners in this work, to be proximate to the issues that the legal aid attorneys and and other nonprofit organizations are facing to bring like the different kind of skills we might have to help support that system, you know, to really listen and the idea that like a small amount of funding can help open things up. And so all of those things, any firm can do that.
6: And it, it, that cross-pollination and the delivery capability we now have um, to share amongst the civil aid system as a whole and then have those systems filtered to the pro bono system as we've redesigned it, design really does matter. and. The outcome of that work that has transformed our system is a perfect example. If you don't believe in program design, come see how our system worked before. Come see how our system works now. And the only difference is the investment of a little bit of money and a whole bunch of design.
0: Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a non-profit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.